Triathlon Show 349. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Dr. Andy Renfrey. Andy is a sports and exercise scientist with a background in and passion for running and uh, middle distance running in particular. In this interview, we discuss uh, one of Andy's main uh, scientific areas of expertise or academic areas of expertise, which is pacing. But we also have a more general discussion about training, uh, sports science and integrating training and sports science and lots of different topics that uh, Andy has written about in his blog. Those were uh, a couple of topics that I thought would be interesting to go into detail about with him because he does have a very good blog that I highly recommend you check out. Uh, The link will be in the show notes, of course, so, so you can find it easily. Before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, tri suits, swim skins, goggles, performance sunglasses, and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. And uh, if we talk about the eyeglass and sunglasses uh, category, they all come with Geeko anti slip technology, so they never fall off your face. They are extremely lightweight and they have fantastic optic and optical qualities. The performance sunglasses are used at the very highest level in sports from triathlon through speed skating to outdoor and adventure activities. And for prescription glasses, there is also a home try, tryout program. So, and you can re- renew your prescription with a simple online vision test at home in front of your computer. All products have multiple options for frames and lenses, and they all come with a two-year warranty. And personally, some of my favorites include the Rory prescription glasses, the Phantom Aviator sunglasses, and the Matador and Matador Air performance sunglasses for sports. Visit roca.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your entire Roca order. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a swim training tool that you can use at home that allows you to improve your technique, work on power and stamina, and save time and stay consistent even when you're not uh, able to go to the pool. It's a fantastic way to work on swim-specific core activation uh, because the instability element of the swim bench forces you to stabilize your core. And it helps you work on a high elbow catch because the height of the bench is perfectly designed uh, for making you keep that elbow up. You can get tips and specific workouts to use on the trainer on the Senate social media channels like YouTube and Instagram. The Senate Swim Trainer is very affordable and even more so with a 20% discount code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. Now without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Andy Renfrey. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Andy. How are you doing? Good. Great, thanks. Can you start by just giving us an introduction? Uh, tell us who you are and what your background is in, in endurance sports. Right. Hi, I'm Andy Renfrey. I'm a principal lecturer in sport and exercise science at the University of Worcester in the UK. Um, I teach in a range of undergraduate and postgraduate modules related to exercise physiology and sports science. I don't know what I am. I, I would have said I was a physiologist a few years ago now, but now I think I'm a bit more of a jack of all trades. I kind of dabble in all areas. Um, so I, I do some teaching, I do some research. Um, athletically, I would say I'm a frustrated, failed athlete. I've got a background in middle distance running, so not triathlon. Um, I achieved, well, I competed at reasonable national kind of levels. So my best results were, um, I was fourth in the national championships indoors and seventh in outdoors. And uh, when, when I worked in Scotland, I got a couple of national titles up there as well. But like everybody, I feel as I should have run a little bit faster than that. Um, and then academic, well, research wise, um, I got my PhD in looking at the role of decision-making and trying to explain um, regulation of exercise performance, so pacing as such. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. We'll, we'll get into the topic of pacing in, in more detail. Uh, I can also mention that uh, you have an excellent blog uh, where you write relatively frequently, I would say, and uh, write some some really good stuff about uh, physiology, but also just general training decisions. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm reading in your on your blog and on your Twitter, uh, you you do like to try to always bridge the gap between the science and the practice. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I mean, the, the reason I was interested in sports science in the first place is I wanted to know how to run faster. So I've always got very applied kind of focus for my kind of work and all my thinking. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So so let's start with one topic that uh, that you have written about uh, on that blog of yours, and that is about athletes as complex systems and uh, how training is uh, 
quite quite a messy reality, really. So can you explain what you mean by that and, and what are the implications in training and in coaching? Right, okay. Um, well, this, this thought originally came to me when I was flying back from a conference. I was at a conference where I'd been talking about pacing. I was on the plane. I was trying to summarize everything I knew about pacing and what, what caused pacing behavior to, to be as it was. And it kind of dawned on me that everything affects pacing. So that was my kind of enlightenment moment. Then I kind of realized that everything affects everything. So um, I've come across the terms emergent phenomenon and complex systems before, but I hadn't really explored them in much detail. So I went to look at um, complex systems and essentially everything in biology is a complex system. So complex is not quite the same as complicated. It's got a specific meaning. And what it tends to mean is, is that in any complex system, the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. So I can know everything about an athlete in terms of their physiology, their um, anthropometry, their psychological characteristics, all about them. But I still couldn't predict how well that athlete would respond to training or how they will perform in competition on any given day. So there's always an element of unpredictability in any kind of complex system trying to predict how it will behave. Yeah, and I think I think that's something that intuitively everybody's familiar with and that's like as coaches for example we talk about the the art of coaching and and i guess that's kind of what we're uh we're getting at a little bit with with that that you can't just put on your scientist hat and and expect to get good results there is some art to it and uh but yeah it's uh how exactly that plays out uh, is i mean it's different for every everybody every athlete and every coach i guess what would you say are the implications of uh of athletes being complex systems and and even phenomenons like pacing being uh being such a complex phenomenon and so on well i think it's the, the unpredictability is the key issue so um it's very difficult to know exactly what will happen with any kind of intervention but also some seemingly very small detail can have a major impact on performance further down the line so it's like a you've heard the story of a butterfly flapping its wings in india can cause a tornado in the, in the states in a few months time you know, that, that is a plausible chain of events, but you can never start with a tornado and work backwards and work out that the butterfly was the cause of it. So it's difficult to identify what has necessarily caused the changes in behavior you actually see in an athlete. Um, also, in my reading about complex systems, I read some of Nassim Taleb's work, which has influenced my thinking quite significantly. He talks about um, fragile, um, anti-fragility, anti-fragility yeah. in complex yeah. systems, yeah. And he's got a nice analogy. So we all know something which is fragile. So if I take a cup and drop it on the floor, it breaks. So it's fragile. Whereas if I drop the metal cup, it won't break. It'll bounce. So that would be robust. But biological systems are anti-fragile. So not only do they not necessarily break as long as the stress isn't too big, they actually grow stronger. So stress seems information. So when we are working with athletes, we are always applying stressors in some way, shape or form. And what we're looking for is kind of, um, the system to see that stress as um, information to which it responds and grows stronger. So essentially any kind of biological system will respond to volatility and randomness. So I think you have to introduce elements of volatility and randomness into your training schedule and your lifestyle generally. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting take. Uh, uh, absolutely. And uh, it's it's fun that you should me- mention uh, anti-fragile or anti-fragility. There's been actually quite a few guests on this podcast quite r- recently have have brought up that book in one of the questions that I'll ask at the end of the interview for you as well as the, their favorite book or resource. Um, you can predict what's I, coming up there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah, and that, that's the other thing that I wanted to uh, to piggyback on you mentioning that uh, it's difficult to predict what will happen and uh, the uncertainty. And I think that that's something that is, uh, I guess, a takeaway that uh, listeners can take from this: that uh, you 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 can never be certain about anything. Like you can you can hypothesize, but I think it's good to be humble about the limitations of our knowledge and uh, how little we really can predict what but might happen I, from I, a certain. As sports people, I think that's a good thing as well. We don't want sport to be too predictable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah, the entire betting industry would, would fail if that, if that <laughs> happened. So they would be very, <laughs> very miserable. Um, the, ne- the next topic that I want to talk to you about is, and, and it's <laughs> related to this. I, I see now that you've talked a little bit more about, uh, complex systems, but you have written about the, the futile search for the optimal training program. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, this is what I find really interesting. I spent many, many hours and years thinking about this. Um, essentially, the reason I got interested in sports science is I wanted to know how to run faster. And I thought the secret lay in the training. So I was, um, I was self-coached. So I was doing lots of reading myself around the area. 
And a few things jumped out at me. And first of all, is lots of athletes were training in very different ways, but achieving very similar results. So does the training matter? Is it all in the genetics? Is it in the athlete? You know, what is actually causing these different training programs to have the similar outcomes? Maybe somebody's doing very well despite the training schedule. Okay. The training might be shocking for most people, amazing talent allows them to get away with it. So I was dealing with these kind of issues. More recently, I started to look at the scientific literature and effectively there are two types of scientific study you come across. There's the experimental study or there's the case study or the descriptive type of studies. And, um, I think you can see limitations of both types. I'm not saying that all training science is flawed, by the way. I think it's really, really difficult to do before anybody says, I'm here criticizing all the training studies. Um, but first of all, if you t- look at a um, short-term training study, what you notice is that high intensity nearly always wins. And when you look at what the elite athletes are doing, they're not just, they're not just doing hit all of the time. Okay, So if you start digging around in these studies, um, you look at who the participants are and who... So the participants are usually 20-year-old active sports students because the research is done by people like myself on our captive audience as students. Okay, there, there are exceptions to this for what generally that's for lots of studies that are actually done. So um, that's one thing you need to consider. And also the studies are 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks in duration. Okay, so not reflective of what elite athletes do in preparation for their own, their own events. So my take on these studies is they don't necessarily show you what is the best training method, but they show you what produces the quickest results in a short period of time. And you don't really know what would happen if you go beyond the, the end point of that study. Um, and then if you dig a bit deeper into it, you look at some athletes respond to the training stimulus and some don't. So there was a really nice study I found by, um, is it Bart Ronnestad in Norway? He's done some work on interval training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he hasn't been using... Um, students as participants he's got elite athletes as participants in his studies which i think is a real strength of them but there was one study comparing short duration interval training and long duration interval training now if you read the headline news and short interval training is superior to long interval training but you start looking at the individual participants and some people actually respond quite negatively to the short interval training sessions okay whereas other ones do better on the long interval sessions so if i'm coaching you for instance i want to know what's best for you not what's best for an best on average for a group of participants who are not you. So trying to transfer the results of these training studies to the individual athlete you're working with is actually quite difficult and quite problematic. The, the other issue we've got is, is that once you've done those training sessions, you're not the same person anymore. So your physiology has changed as a result of those interventions. So will the same stimulus have the same impact in future? Okay, I would suggest possibly not. So I think there are some limitations to the um, experimental studies of, of that type. Um, but alongside that, you've got the uh, case study type um, type publications, which I absolutely love reading. They're my favourite studies to read. I love to know what athletes have actually been doing. But again, if I read about how Lance Armstrong trained, for example, I'm not Lance Armstrong, so what he does wouldn't necessarily work for me. Or there's been some really nice studies lately by Arturo Casado done some really nice work on the training of a Kenyan athlete. So um, look at the effect of deliberate practice on um, performance in elite Kenya runners. Um, but the issue we've got here is, and he, he's told me this personally, if you go to a Saturday morning training session in Kenya, you get 350 to 400 runners turning up and doing a fartlek session. So it might be the case, this, not definitely, but it might be the case that actually it's kind of who survived his training schedule, the strongest survivor, and it's not necessarily the training that is responsible for the outcomes we see. Maybe the magic's not in the training anyway, okay? There was a really nice study published in, I think it was 2006, by Jonathan Estevlanau, which compared Eritrean to European distance runners. And the only distance, the only differences between them physiologically was in running economy. And when you look at the anthropometric data, the um, lower limb volume of the Eritrean runners is much lower than the European runners, okay? So if you think about it in terms of economy, the last place to put a massive great weight is on the end of your limb. So big calf muscles are probably um, responsible for those changes in running economy. So again, there are issues with trying to transfer case study data to what you to the training decisions you're making with your athletes on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and and was it you or was it somebody else that that also talked about this on Twitter, I believe, where um, you or somebody <laughs> pointed out that that you can't really look into how how that training came about, like what is the decision making behind what ends up being shown in the paper as this is training they did but but what you don't see really is the process behind it like how how do you might they change the 
plan on on a day to day basis, or how how do they come up with that? So so that's potentially the process might potentially be as important or more important than the actual training. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you can retrospectively quantify the training intensity intensity distribution of these athletes, but to me, it's almost a bit like trying to start with a cake and work out what the recipe was. So what you want to know is how they came to that training intensity distribution. Did they start with it on paper? This is what we're, how we're going to divide our training sessions up. Or is that what the end product was of the day-to-day decision-making? And I suspect it's probably the latter. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned earlier that, well, if you were coaching me, then you would want to find out what training I respond best to rather than the average uh, uh, study participant. Do you have any thoughts on how you how the individual athlete or coach can can find that out like would you go about doing a bunch of testing or um, yeah how, how how would you figure that out that's the million dollar question isn't it <laughs> and um honestly i don't know how you could ever know that you've got the optimal trainings schedule for any individual because i can't try one workout on you then remove that the effects of that from your body and then try something else see what the effect of that is okay because You've always got the legacy of those previous sessions within within your physiology somewhere or other. Um, so I think all you can really do is make is focus on performance and health and well being. Okay, so health and well being has to be the priority because if you're not healthy, then you're not going to perform very well in the first place. Uh, as long as you're staying healthy and your performance is progressing, then I think that is probably as good as you can actually do in terms of monitoring the impact of any interventions on you. Mm. With everything you know now, is there anything that you think that if you could go back in time, you would have done differently in your in your running career. Um, yes, I would have done much slower interval training sessions. So I expect the classic mistake of going to the track with my stopwatch, which is now something I think is a big no no for every interval session. I would blast out sessions aiming for you know, specific target times, regardless of whether it was snowing, blowing a gale, raining, hot as you know, a really hot day, and um, I, I destroy myself for running far too intensely in interval training sessions. Yeah. Yeah, I see that a lot. <laughs> uh, uh, you go to typical club night in the UK, every Tuesday night, hundreds of people all over the country are doing that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad it's it's there as well. Like, it's just <laughs> the UK, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, what about collecting and using data? Is that something that you uh, think can help uh, the training process? And how, how would you, yeah, what, what kind of data would you, would you collect? Right, okay, I'm... I have my thoughts on this, which are not always necessarily the most popular um, thoughts. I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical of some of the collecting vast amounts of data these days um, to monitor the training progress. So I, I can understand exactly why people are trying to collect data, trying to identify you know, the impact of the um, training sessions and the training loadings on um, physiology and so on. But I, I first became a bit suspicious of this a few years ago when I was trying to quantify my own training loads. So I was calculating load, monotony and variation and um, stress using Foster's methods. Um, so, do you, you know, training those session, session RPE multiplied by training duration. Okay. So using the simple uh, SRPE method, I, I was training for middle distance running and I would go to the track and run a very, very complex session. Sorry, not complex, very difficult session. So something like four by 400 meters at 800 meter race pace with a three minute rest between each. And that's a session which would leave me absolutely destroyed. You know, walking down the stairs backwards for a couple of days. Yet when I came to calculate the load value, it was slower than the recovery run I did the following day. So what I found was was that the um, the load calculations tended to underemphasize the role of intensity and overemphasize the role of um, volume in these tra- training sessions. And that's something that I've written about um, last year in a paper we um, published on training loads. Again, we identified the problem, but not necessarily the solution to it. But I see a few other people are onto the same issue at the moment as well. So I totally get why people are trying to quantify training loads and measure physiological responses and so on. But my issue with it is, and this goes back to some of the information I've read in Anti-Fragile, again, so it's coming from the Taleb kind of perspective, is that if you get lots of data, it's very difficult to confuse noise with signal. I think the example is some people deny global warming is taking place because, oh, it's snowing here in, you know, in March. What's that say about global warming? So that, that that's just noise in day-to-day signal, okay? So it's that's dis- distracting you from the big picture. So it's almost a point where too much data becomes problematic, and you need to you need something much more simple to collect the um, big overall trends, and not necessarily the, the small variations in isolated physiological variables. 
Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And and you you say something that actually just a few weeks ago, at least by the time that we we are recording this interview, uh, I had uh, Louis Passfield on as a guest, and he's also done uh, a lot of research in training load, and he said the exact same thing about uh, intensity and and volume that the intensity is is quite often underestimated in in sessions uh, compared to to what it should be. And um, yeah, he had some interesting thoughts for listeners that may not have uh, heard that interview and that are interested in this topic. I, I recommend going and and uh, and listening to to that as well because we go quite deep into into that specific topic. Um, but yeah, I I mean I, I completely agree with with what you're saying there about training load and yeah signal to noise ratio. I and that's that's what we discussed in that episode with with Dr. Pressfield as well. But you do have um, to measure something, though. So I'm not completely yeah. against measuring, um, collecting data of any sort. Yeah. And I prefer to use kind of gestalt summary kind of data. So sensations of well-being, affective states, um, muscle soreness. Okay, so a bit more kind of higher level summary kind of um, sensational data from the athletes. Yeah, yeah. I, I always come back to um, subjective feedback is data, even though <laughs> you, you don't necessarily think about it, but but it, that is data just as much as it's not quantitative, but it's still data. And, and I think that that's the most important thing. But it's been uh, known for a long time that the first signal of impending overtraining is changes in psychological state prior to any measurable physiological changes as well. So, I mean, I guess the assumption that your psychological state reflects a physiological status in some way, which um, makes entire sense to me as well. Mm. And how uh, do you have any, like there are some some tools, of course, like I know DELDA, the daily analysis of life demands for athletes and the POMS, profile of mood states, those have been used quite a bit in overtraining, overreaching research. Uh, do you, Would you use something like that or do you have any other things that you would use something like poms or um the feeding scale in fact actually just talking to athletes i think is really important so there's a very good sports psychologist he used to tell me he used to use the ultra short pom scale which he called it which was how are you and mm. he could get loads and loads of useful information about the athlete status just from asking that single question yeah yeah absolutely yeah um and what about one thing i want to ask uh, to you then as a follow-up to that if uh it, the main you you you, you you expressed some skepticism there around uh, some of the data collection that we're doing, but how would you, and also about bringing a stopwatch to the track, for example, how would you prescribe workouts if you're coaching an athlete, uh, let's say it's a runner, uh, would you use RPE or heart rate or pace, or I guess it might depend as well on the type of session, so you can elaborate on, on exercise prescription from your perspective. Well, from my back, my background in middle distance running, so i I just emphasize that it is kind of shorter events and many of your listeners might potentially be um, used to training for. Um, we always used to use paces. So 800 meter race pace, 1500 meter race pace, 3K pace, 5K pace, 10K pace, etc. But um, obviously there's a difference between goal pace as your ultimate goal and goal and your abilities on any given day. And also it depends massively on the weather for the weather conditions on the day, etc. and so on. So I prefer to um the idea of training prescription by perception of effort effectively so you know try to run these reps at approximately three kilometer race pace so like race effort basically is what your race effort not pace that's correct that's a much better term yeah yeah Um, i'm also have some thoughts about the stopwatch again i think overusing the stopwatch can get athletes into all sorts of trouble because these put numbers in people's minds and numbers are not necessarily lined up entirely with physiology on any given day so um for much of the time i would prefer to use the athletes um prescribe the training based on perceptions of effort or feelings um rather than time to such and this isn't overly new okay so um i'm quite interested in the training methodology of um, mihaly igloy who did loads of work with interval training in the 1950s and the 60s um, achieved great success in the um, Czech Republic and in, in the States when he moved over there. He would never inform the athletes how quickly they were actually running, but he would prescribe them paces such as um, fresh, good, very good, etc. And then by closely observing the athletes, he would then notice what, what they needed next. So he would break the work down into sets. Then based on the athletes' responses to one set, he would give them a little bit of jog and prescribe the next set. So it's very response-driven and based on maintenance of quality running technique throughout the sessions itself. Yeah, 
yeah and it's something i've heard from uh, from some really good triathlon coaches recently as well especially when training in a group environment that uh that it is becoming more common i think among top coaches to not focus on the paces but uh on various aspects like you said technique i mean some a lot of coaches now you tend to use things like lactate as well to uh, as a control measure or intensity control um but whatever it is like just having that awareness that it's not always about like just crushing yourself and and that risk is even greater when you're training in a group which uh in a middle distance environment i think is is quite common just as it is in in triathlon so i I think that's that's an important thing to uh to highlight but i think Uh, the stopwatch can be particularly dangerous as well because well in two ways so athletes can crush themselves chasing times i think suggested but also might actually put barriers in the way so you know i've done sessions myself i thought i didn't know i was running that fast i better slow down a little bit but actually, that's a negative. That's another way of looking at using the stopwatch as potentially negative in terms of the the mental status of the athlete. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I would completely agree. With most of the session, the run sessions I prescribe for my for my athletes are based on a certain effort, and it's usually ten k effort or half marathon effort or marathon effort, and sometimes it's uh, Ironman uh, effort or so you know, half Ironman effort or so on. So, yeah. so it's, it's very rarely, um, pace, uh, well, it sometimes is pace driven, but not for the very hard sessions. And, and actually for the triathletes that I coach anyway, it would pretty much never go above 5k, 5k effort would be pretty much the fastest for most, most of my athletes, uh, except yeah, for yeah. some, some exceptions do exist, but, uh, and then, and then of course that the advantage of that is that you can, when you know the athlete, you can, adjust if you know that somebody tends to run a bit too hard then just say 10k effort when you really mean 5k effort and then you will probably get the right one that's the exactly right the strategy i've recommended to an athlete i've been involved with as well so they always run too quickly so you just tell them to go pace slower than they should be then you want them running out that'll uh nip that problem in the bud. yeah yeah um and what would you say is the the role of sports science for in training and in in coaching how how and when can athletes and coaches benefit from it and but but also what are the limitations to be aware of okay um i think sports science is essential for coaches to use it's going to be evidence-based practitioners hopefully everybody is evidence-based practitioners now i think most good coaches these days are and there has been research showing that the best coaches or the expert coaches they do refer to sports science and in informing their practice so i think the link is there and sports scientists should be using it but i think um there are some limitations to it. I think part of it is our fault as sports scientists. So we don't always necessarily communicate the implications of our work to the, the, the end users as such. So I, I read lots of scientific journal articles. And if I'm blunt, I find them quite hard going. Okay. I, I'm trained as a scientist. So I can imagine if you haven't got that training, they must be incredibly hard to read and extract the key information from a scientific journal. Um, so there, there's that issue. So I think it's really important that sports scientists communicate their information so the implications of the funding in some way to the end users which is one of the reasons i blog about information as well so um you know, rather than a table of statistics and numbers and graphs and so on if you can actually write what this means for the athletes then i think that's very useful as well so there's a role for scientists to communicate the information I also think it's very important for scientists to actually understand sport as well. That sounds obvious, but I have come across some people who are excellent scientists who call themselves sports scientists, yet they've got very limited knowledge of sport itself. Okay, so they're answering questions that maybe the coaches don't want answering. So, you know, they're answering questions that are just the wrong questions. But what I would also like is I'm really, really happy when a coach um, approaches me and asks me about a problem they've got with their co- with their practice. So I think we need to increase that dialogue. I would encourage coaches to come to the athletes to ask, sorry, coaches to come to the sports scientists and ask them their advice and opinions. And what I would really like is somebody to come to me with a research question they want to address, because then I know that I'm answering the, the problems that the coaches have actually got. Mm, yeah, no, those those are all uh, really, really great points. And uh, yeah, I agree, agree with all of that. I think I think one thing as well, when you mentioned that, about how scientists communicate, I think I think that's that's one area where where I think there could be improvement is also in communication the uh, communication of the limitations of of the research or the scope uh, of where it might apply or might not apply because i think that's where a lot of people might go wrong especially if they don't have a um, they are not trained in reading 
scientific papers, then it's easy to see the results and maybe the conclusions without necessarily having an understanding of the limitations mm-hmm. and, and where it might not apply. I mean, I had a really nice experience last November. There was the European Athletics Endurance Conference at Leeds in, in the UK. And the presenters were mostly academic, um, but the audience were practitioners. And there was a really nice dialogue between the academic researchers and the practitioners. Uh, explored over a few beers a little bit later as well. And I, I found that to be a really beneficial conference. And hopefully that kind of event, there'll be more of those kind of events in the future going forward. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing. Um, now let's move on to discuss pacing a little bit as that's uh, a topic that you have researched uh, very much and did your PhD on. So, so, and I mean, obviously we could, we could discuss that for a long, long time because you did do your PhD on it and there's a lot to it, but maybe let's, let's try to give a bit of an overview of some different aspects of, of pacing. And, and then I will link to, uh, to some papers that you have done and, and, uh, in the show notes so listeners can go and have a look at that. Uh, the first question then that I have is uh, regarding how a fast start uh, might impact performance from a pacing perspective. Okay, well, a fast start is nearly always bad if um, optimal performance in terms of your fastest possible time is your goal. Um, unless you took it to the short event, so something like 800-meter races, um, fastest times are associated with what's, with what's called a positive split strategy where the first half is slightly faster than the second half. But anything from about four minutes or upwards, um, even pace or negative splits where you finish slightly faster is um, is superior. I think it's quite interesting that when Kipchoge broke the two-hour barrier in Vienna a couple of years ago, they used a car to set the pace and they went for exactly even pace throughout the race. And I see it on the track these days with the wave-like technologies. It's on the Diamond Leagues. They always go for, for, for even pace throughout the race. I've actually got some problems with the wave-like technology, but maybe we can explore that a little bit later. Um, so, yeah, I work on the basis that even pace is optimal, but you very, very rarely see it. So there was um, some nice work by Ross Tucker and Tim Noakes back in the 2000s looking at pacing strategies in world records over 800, 5K, 10K in the mile, I believe it was. And what you see is in the world records, there's always a consistent pacing strategy. So this is evidence that there's some kind of control control mechanism regulating pace in athletes but i look at that and thought, i don't really believe this i'm not doubting what they're saying but i know most of my races i've not displayed that pace strategy. i've crawled across the line and run a second half much slower than the first half of the race um so what i did was myself and zig St. Clair gibson we analyzed the pacing data from the women's marathon at the world championships in berlin in 2009 we chose this race because there was lots of data available on the internet effectively but there were 60 competitors who all qualified for the world championship to the national teams and the race is also relatively flat um, multiple loops on the city center circuit so there is minimal impact of hills or terrain etc on the placing profile so we took the 60 finishers and split them into four groups so first quarter of finishers second quarter of finishers third quarter of finishers and the final quarter of finishers and we did a few things with that data. So first of all, we looked at the PBs of the athletes who finished in each group, and not surprisingly, the fastest athletes finished at the front and the slowest athletes finished at the back. So that, that, that was no great surprise. But then when we looked at how far the athletes in each group finished behind the leaders compared to how far they should have finished based on their personal best, we found that the further down the field athletes finished, the more they underperformed relative to the leading group of athletes. So effectively, they finished further behind them than they should have finished behind them. So that was quite interesting. What became really clear was why this happened when we looked at the pacing strategies of them all. So if you look at the 5K splits, essentially that there was no differences in absolute running speeds between groups in the first 5 and 10K. Um, but then as the race progressed, some athletes progressively dropped off the pace. So I think some of the athletes who finished at the back, they had something like a 17% reduction in running speed between 5K and 40K. So a huge drop off in running speed, which obviously nobody would choose to do. So that, that's not a strategic decision. That is as a consequence of what's happened in the race. So why did we see this? So I think, well, physiologically, all sorts of things were going on. So they were running out of glycogen. They were getting too hot. They were dehydrated. They were probably kind of losing motivation session and so on. But ultimately, all of these problems, all of this underperformance resulted from a poor decision right at the start of the race. So that that was my kind of eureka moment. That that was it. That decision-making was key to the performance and the pacing behavior we see during these events itself. So what I'm interested in really is what informs that decision-making process. But to go back to your initial question about fast starts, um, obviously it was for these athletes in these races, 
But if you go to lots of events, so for cross country races, for instance, I think it's a bit over, overrated to, to a certain extent, but largely you need to sort of relatively quickly tune in position when the course narrows. If you look at something like the English National Cross Country Championships, where there's 3,000 runners over nine miles, it's like a nine mile Wingate test. So the, the gun goes, everybody runs as fast as they can and then hangs on for the next nine miles. It's, it's horrific. It's a test of survival. So essentially in that situation, everybody is placing themselves badly. So I think the key for athletes who want to do well in that race is to somehow maintain their optimal pacing strategy in the, in the face of all sorts of temptations to deviate from what's optimal for them. It's, it's a bit the same in triathlon, uh, especially over the sprint and Olympic distance races where the swim, but even to some extent, to a lesser extent, but still to some extent in long distance triathlon, but, but especially in the shorter races, uh, which still, mind you, last uh, close to an hour for the sprint and, and close to two hours for the Olympic. Uh, so the race to the first buoy in the swim, which is, we're talking about 200 meters, maybe one to 300 meters, depending on the course, or 400 meters. It's, it's just a couple of minutes or, or so normally. Uh, and, and that is an all-out sprint for everybody just to get to the buoy with somewhat clear water, because otherwise you just get stuck and stood up around the buoy and you lose that, that lead group and, and they get away with clear water. But, but you're stuck with a bunch of athletes, 20 athletes around you, 30 athletes around you, and, and you can't go anywhere. So, so that's, yeah, that's, that's a very analogous situation to the cross country races, uh, I, I think. And, and everybody knows that they have to race that way and they have to train to be able to race that way. Yeah. I mean, things get really interesting if you look at cycle racing. So if, if you're allowed to draft, then if everybody else goes off fast, you've got to go fast as well because you're just losing that advantage. So cycling in the peloton, I've got an ex collaborator called Hugh Trenchard. He's done lots of work on complex systems in, um, cycle pelotons. He has described a cycle peloton as a super organism where essentially, although it's made up of lots of competitors, so 200 or so in the Tour de France, they, they all act as one group and he's, he's trying to model the behavior of the group based on um, the difference between the abilities of the riders and the, the drafting benefit gained from, from the speeds and also the effect of climbs on that. Yeah, 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 that's fascinating, right? There's, uh, yeah, so, so many, so many factors affecting that. Um, can can you go into a bit more detail around the decision making then that you said that you became really interested in and uh, yeah what what do you know now about how decision making um, yeah how 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 that plays a part in pacing this, uh, in pacing right okay well, this could get a bit complicated um, essentially a decision is where you have to make a choice between any number of options so at any point during a race or a training session you have to decide how quick I'm going to go now. And essentially all paces are available to you between stopping dead and the maximum which you're capable of at that period of time. Now, I would assume that as the race, if, if you're racing, if the race progresses, your maximal ability declines slightly as, as the event um, gets towards its end. But essentially, you've got a whole host of paces you have to choose between. So what I'm interested in is how are those decisions actually made? Now, to simplify a little bit, there are two broad categories of decision-making. There's um, rational and heuristic. So rational decision-making basically implies that you are a, you're a walking statistician. Um, so you're always weighing up the risks and the rewards or the probabilities of certain outcomes occurring based on certain behavioral decisions. Um, now, that's cognitively very, very demanding. And because you need certainty in terms of the probabilities of certain outcomes occurring, it can only happen in what's called a small world environment. So a small world environment is essentially an environment in which you know everything about if I do this, this will happen, or at least you know the probabilities of, it, of this happening if I do this. So most of life is not a small world. There are too many uncertainties. So just you, you don't know exactly how you will respond to upping your pace by one second per lap, for example. Um, and let alone, you, you have no idea how your opponents will respond to that as well. So I would argue that because um, pacing and racing is not a small world. You can't really make rational decisions in terms of pace regulation during the event itself. So you, your only alternative then is to use heuristic decision making, which sounds a bit sounds a bit basic to be honest. But in reality, can, you, can you define can you define heuristic decision making? Yeah, gut instinct, rules of thumb, that kind of thing. So essentially, you you ignore most of the data available to you and just focus on a few key. Um, key features of the environment so i'll give you an example which we um talked about in our, in our in the review paper we wrote in sports medicine a few years back 
there's something called the affect heuristic. So affect is your kind of um, em- emotional state at any given moment in time. So how positive or how negative you feel overall. So if you've got a, a decision to make, if you're choosing between two options, you will go for the option which produces the most positive or the least negative affective response. So I give an example of um, if I'm a middle distance runner. So my goal as as a runner, which I failed to achieve, is I always wanted to run a four-minute mile. Okay. Never did it. But if, imagine if I was coming up to the bell in my four-minute mile attempt, I, I will receive information. So th- there's a clock beside the um, track saying two minutes 55. So I know I've got a good chance of achieving a sub-four-minute mile. This will produce a positive sensation. So I will think there is rewards associated with um, – engaging this behavior so i will go for i will try to accelerate and maintain my speed over the final lap of the of the race alternatively if i come up to the track and the, the bell and the clock says three minutes 10 seconds oh that's it never gonna happen so i feel negative okay so i either just um jog in so bin it for the day or i attempt to um pursue it even though i know it's gonna be futile so there there is no reward um associated with trying to pick up the pace over the final lap if I'm not going to achieve my goal. But there is a risk, so fatigue, physiological damage, and so on. So based on the information I receive from that from that clock, that affects my affective response, and then that will impact on the decision I make with regards to my pacing behavior. And yeah. I'd, just like to, I'd just like to clarify also, so sometimes RPE or rating of perceived exertions would be implicated in pacing behavior as well. Um, affect and RPE, they, they appear to be related, but they're not exactly the same thing. So, for instance, if I was aware that I was going to achieve my four-minute-mile goal, um, goal, my RPE could be very, very high. But although I was um, feeling very positive, because I was feeling very positive, I might be more willing to tolerate that high, that high RPE over the final lap of the race. Okay. Whereas in the situation where I see the slow time beside the track, um, my RPE might be equal, but because my affective response is low. I bid it and jog in my RP will drop over that final lap of the track. Yeah, I've, I think, I mean, that's, I think most athletes have experienced that when you're having a good race, you can push yourself and it hurts, but you kind of enjoy that pain. And, and, and yeah, exactly. Good, but, good pain. Yeah, exactly. And then when you have a bad race, on the other hand, then you just, uh, it's, it's always such a struggle to not just bin it, as you said. And, and because it's, it's so, intolerable to to put yourself through that pain when when it seems that, that you're not getting that reward for it so yeah, i think big, big risk but little reward so the yeah. the risk reward balance seems really really important mm, yeah yeah that's fascinating do you think that uh, are there any practical implications for example in terms of what data you should have available to you uh, or not have available to you to I, I don't know pace better is that something that you can glean from from that information oh i'm doing some work on this so i don't want to give the game away at the moment because in case any potential participants in my study are listening so um but there is there's some really interesting stuff done looking at deception during time trials so i'll describe an experiment one of my undergraduate students did here a few years ago um mm-hmm. gavin thomas who's now lecturing here as well he did a quite a devious but very simple experiment so he had participants coming into the lab on four occasions to do a 10k time trial on ergo and he, he, he told them all the study was to look at familiarization or something like that what, what he was actually doing was much more devious so the first trial was a kind of familiarization trial then on three more occasions they came in to do a 10k tt but they were moving a marker up a screen so essentially all they had to do was watch the marker move up the screen until they get to the finishing point and there was a clock beside the marker but on one, of the, one occasion, the clock was running at the correct time. On one occasion, it was running 3% too slow. And on one occasion, it was running 3% too fast. So when it was running slow, they were doing, they thought they were doing better than they really were. When it was running fast, they thought they were doing worse than they really were. Now, what we found is that in all conditions, RPE increased at exactly the same rate. So linear improvement and li- linear increase stopping at maximum as they crossed the finish line. But they went faster overall. Let me look at the real times when they thought they were doing better than when they thought they were doing worse. So that presumably what they were doing is that they were comparing their progress towards their performance during the baseline trial. So it's that concept of goal progression which seems really, really important. And as soon as you become aware that you're not going to achieve your goal, or you get a goal performance discrepancy, 
then your affective state becomes more negative in nature. So I think the biggest implication is appropriate goal setting, because if you get that goal wrong and you don't achieve it, then you are going to get negative psychological responses as the event progresses. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, that's a really good point because there is, I was just thinking about, well, should you just leave your watch at home when you're doing an Ironman, for example? But there is some great risk in that as well, because then you might easily just run way faster than you actually should be and are capable of, because it doesn't feel very hard when you get started on that run, but, but it will cost you later on. So, yeah. so I, mean, I think the, in, the longer the event, the greater the risk of pacing errors. Yeah. 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 So so I guess then as you say it comes back to goal setting to to minimize the risk of um of of getting in that state where you're you're not capable of achieving your goal anymore and then and then you throw the cards in. So but goal setting is much easier when your performance when your goal is a fast time or a specific time. It's much more complicated when my goal is to win. Mm. So if my goal is to beat you and you're having a good day, I could be performing performing you know at my absolute potential on the day but because you're performing even better i feel really negative and i get and i, I underperform on the day mm. so there is definitely a difference between performance goals in terms of times and performance goals in terms of race outcomes mm. can you tell us more about that i think you had a study specifically looking at that if i'm not mistaken or this is one of the ones with everton crivoy in um in brazil yeah everton's done some really nice work um Raised looked at individuals racing against each other in a 10k time trial. I believe that was one of the studies you mm, talked yeah, about. Yeah. So they, they did a time, they did an individual time trial on their own, which sounds horrendous, or they did a 10k race. Now, what they found was that not surprisingly, participants went faster when they were racing against each other. Um, in both in both trials, the RPE increased linearly and then peaked at 19 or 20 at the end, as you see in all trials. But the affective state was higher or more positive when they're running in a head-to-head situation. So what seems to have happened there is the presence of competitors had made them feel less negative during the event itself. And I guess what you could have done is you could have um, you could have done some further analysis and you would have found that the RPE to, power, to, the RPE to speed ratio would have been increased as a result of that increased affective state um, during the event itself. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, w- what else can you tell us about how a racing situation versus an individual time trial situation are, are there any other things that are that, that would, would be important to know or interesting to know uh, about about that the racing scenario oh there, there was another study we did with um everton where he was looking at people competing against um avatars who were going faster or slower than they went in the baseline trial and what he found was is that when you're competing against an avatar who was way faster than you your self-efficacy, so your kind of confidence and belief in your own abilities actually decreased during the event itself. But I will say um, one of my colleagues or collaborators on the past paper, Dominic Mickerite, said trying to untangle this relationship between RPE, affect, self-efficacy, it's a bit like knitting with spaghetti. So there are all these variables which involve them. I, I think we're still trying to untangle exactly what the relationship is between these different variables here. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about, do, do you know, have you done any work in ultra endurance racing including for example ironman or just uh and ultra running uh and anything that you would say there you did say already that yeah pacing mistakes are, are more costly the longer the race which makes sense uh is there any anything else that you know or would speculate about about ultra endurance pacing uh, i've done a couple of sort of involved a couple of studies ultra endurance races one of which was because we were interested in the effects of aging on pacing um so we looked at the, it was a 100-kilometer ultramarathon which incorporated the World Championships one year. And all the Masters age groups ran together and males and females ran together. So we tried to untangle the effect of gender and age on pacing ability during these kind of events. Because we were kind of working on the assumption that males and females would pace themselves differently because there are allegedly there are differences in competitiveness between males and females, but as as a father of two daughters, I refuse to believe that females are not very competitive. They're the most competitive people I've ever met, but on, on average, apparently females are less competitive than males are. Um, and also the motivational profile of athletes changes as they age. So younger athletes are more competition-driven, whereas older athletes are more social and recreationally-driven. So what we... What we essentially found was we, we, we did find differences between males and females. And essentially, females pace themselves far better than males do. So there could be physiological or psychological reasons for that. Um, 
my hunch is that females are essentially more sensible. So they slow down during the race, but not to the same extent as males actually do. So there are definitely differences between males and females, and that's been discovered in other studies as well. Um, We didn't find any effect of age on pacing strategy, which was a slight surprise to us, but the sample size was a bit limited in some of the older age groups. But what we did find was that regardless of whether they did well or or badly, whether they were male or female, um, an event of that duration is characterized by a negative pacing strategy. So there's essentially a slowdown as the race progresses. Um, Now, there was another study looking at risk perception we did with Don Micklewright. Um, This was looking at a 100-kilometer race across the east of England somewhere. And again, we found an overall reduction in pace as the race progressed. So a negative pace, sorry, a positive pacing strategy. And and how does sorry how does risk perception uh, how how did that play play a part? Oh, right, okay, yeah. So in the, in the risk perception paper, that this was a paper which contained two studies on two very different populations. So one was a group of well trained ultra distance runners who did a hundred kilometer race, and essentially there is a risk taking questionnaire. So this um, characterizes or quantifies individuals' perceptions of risk. So I think there were twenty four twenty six runners in this study. We split them in half based on their um, risk perception profile, so a high-risk perception group and a low-risk perception group. Essentially, those who were low-risk perceivers started faster relative to their average race pace and finished slower than those who were low-risk perceivers. Mm-hmm. Now, the second study in this paper was um, students. So, wait, so high, wait, high-risk perceivers, would you – or would, would you, do you – do you mean high – like risk – They're less risk averse, or or what does risk perceiver mean? Because I, I or the way I, the way it sounds to me, it, it is more risk averse. And they started. They had a they started more, slower, slightly slower start, and and less of a less less, of a, less of a less of a positive split. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, got it. Okay. Then the second study in the same paper was um students doing a five kilometer cycle time trial in the laboratory, and again those who perceive risk. Um, higher um, started more slowly relative to the average pace than those who uh, who, are the, who are the opposite. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. confused by perception and taking here, okay. But essentially, risk characteristics do influence pacing strategy. But it, interestingly, though, there was no difference in actual performance. So although risk characteristics do um, seem to influence the pacing strategy adopted, there is no one group is not superior to the other. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Um, and well, to, to wrap up the pacing, uh, strategy, well, if there's anything else that we have missed, anything really important you want to mention, then, then, uh, just uh, interject and let me know. Otherwise I would just ask if you could boil down everything you know about pacing into some, uh, practical and actionable tips for the listeners for their racing. Uh, what, what would that be? Right. Okay. Um, so just before I go into my actionable tips, I think, What I'm quite interested in, though, is the effect of race tactics. Hmm. So in middle distance running, you know, quite often you you see the Olympic Games run in a relatively slow time. And in competitions such as these, everybody is very equal abilities. So one of the things we've been trying to explore is the tactical decision-making, which allows athletes to be athletes of equal physiological abilities over these kind of durations. And we find things like um, positioning and distance distance run around the bend is very important. You know, um, in fact, total distance coverage. I think it's. You, that, that's actually, that's actually a, a, a very interesting tidbit. How, how much uh, might you lose if you if you run in lane two, for example, versus running in in, in lane one? Well, Andy Jones wrote a paper in 2000, I believe. Well, it was looking at the 2000 Olympic 800 meter final, um, which is won by a German guy, Nils Schumann, in 1:44 and a bit. And second was Wilson Kipkita, the world record holder. Now, when, when they analysed the race. Wilson Kipkita ran 800 meters much faster than Neil Schumann did, but he ran about seven meters further. Hmm. So I think go. I think each lane you want you run wide on the bend is an additional four meters per lap or something like that. So in yeah. very close finishes such as these, um, tactical positioning, especially on the bends, are really, 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 really important. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, and sorry, I I cut you off there. When uh, do go on and talk about the yeah the race tactics and how that uh, yeah how, how how the the influence of of that on the race. Okay, well, essentially, this is another kind of issue we've been trying to unpick as such. So, we've been working on kind of probability. So, if athletes are in a certain position at the 
200 meter point, the 400 meter point, the 600 meter point of a race, what is the probability of that athlete actually achieving a, a medal winning performance at the end of it? And what we find is in the 800 meters, there is very strong relationships between intermediate race positions and final race positions. Whereas in the 1500 meters, it's a bit, bit less, um, well, it's a bit more variable. So I say the relationships between intermediate positions and final positions are much less tightly, tightly tied up. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, and uh, yeah, quite quite pra- good to know and uh, actionable if you are an eight hundred meter runner, for yeah. sure. Okay, so practical tips—that's what you asked me, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, okay, well, these are going to sound really obvious, but I think they're, they're quite hard to implement. So the first one is the obvious one: is just run your own race. Um, but there are so many distractions um, which which could potentially pull you away from your ideal race strategy. Um, one of the things we've talked about in the past is collective behavior. So humans are hardwired to engage in collective behavior. In fact, it's been described in lots of animal species as well. So what this basically says is if you need to make a complex decision, the, the easiest thing to do is to do the same as everybody else is doing. <laughs> so if, if the fire alarm goes off now and I run down the corridor in that direction, because some of the, somebody will assume I know what I'm doing, they, they will all follow me and everybody ends up running the same direction. Okay. So I think what tends to happen is everybody runs at the same initial speeds. And uh, loads of studies have shown that avatars or competitors do influence the, the running speeds of um, participants in trials. So somehow you need to overcome that tendency to just do what everybody else is doing. So I've got a few strategies to potentially overcome that. So the first thing I think you need to do is is you need to get used to performing good efforts in training over your over your full race distance. Now, that's easy for me to say as a middle distance runner, harder for you guys to do as longer distance athletes, but certainly good efforts over your entire race duration. So I'll give you an example of what I see. If I was running 1,500 metres or if I'm coaching a 1,500 metre runner, I could get them doing tempo sessions on the track of six by 1,500 metres at tempo speed. Hmm. Or Sebastian Coe's dad I used to coach and used to get him to run eight, six by 800 metres on the road so that he knew what it feels like at certain points of that race. Okay, so... That's different to the usual approach of learning what it feels like to run at certain speeds over, over shorter distances, okay? So pacing is really all about effort distribution. So get yourself used to running at those distances um, at good efforts. I think if you look at what the Kenyans do for the marathon, they, they do long, fast runs. That's, that's the most important part of their weekly training um, schedule as well. So again, good yeah. efforts over, over the race duration. Um, what you could also do is, if you've got a setup which allows you to do this, you can start... Trying to, you can try to make it more difficult for athletes to maintain their pace in the face of others trying to disrupt them as well. So again, something I picked up from Sebastian Coe's training, he used to run long repetitions on the track, but he would get slower club mix to jump in and out of the reps and try to put a bit of argy-bargy in there and disrupt them from his pacing strategy. So you've got to get used to you know, the elbows and the knees and such and so on, which are um, essentially quite distracting. So run your own race, train by using good efforts over the race distance or duration. And something which I found really, really useful is visualization. Now, if there was the, the single most important conversation I've ever had with anybody, which has improved my running, was with a sports psychologist a long time ago now. It was during a period of time when I was running quite badly, even though I was training very well. So I spoke to this psychologist and he said, what are you thinking about when you're running? And I said, oh, I've got a long way to go and it hurts already. He said, well, correct, you have got a long way to go. So you need to change that. So what we did was instead of running... Instead of thinking of it as a 1,500-meter race, you would think of it as a 400 of 400 of 200 of 200 and three 100s. And what you had to do was you had to visualize in the weeks before the race all the possible scenarios which could unfold in each of those race sections. And if this happens, then what will I do? So, for example, on the first lap, do they go out fast? Do they go really, really slow? Do I find myself at the back feeling good, feeling bad? You know, everything which could happen. So if it goes out fast and I feel good, what will I do? And then you, you do the same for each of the each of the sections, which gets smaller as the race progresses. Because as the race progresses, you get tired, and the, um, you need to shorten those periods if you got to maintain your concentration over. And that that was just like a revelation to me. Races turned into autopilot as soon as I started doing that. Now looking back at it, I can see that what I was doing was I was making my decisions before the race instead of during the race, trying to think when I'm feeling really really tired and under a lot of physiological strain. So I find that really, really helpful to, to move your decision-making to before the event instead of during the event. And if you go back to the earlier um, advice of running good efforts over race distance, if I'm running six 1500s on the track, 
every rep instead of becoming the 1500 meters becomes 400, 400, 200, 200, and three 100s. Mm-hmm. So you can just rehearse that again and again and again. And it just becomes automatic pilot. Yeah. 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 That's, that, those are all really great tips. And, uh, yeah, I don't think that they are, um, obvious at all. Uh, they, so, so that, thank you for that. And, uh, on a more general, uh, topic, but again, asking for some advice for listeners, if you could give three pieces of advice, uh, about anything that would help the listeners improve their endurance performance, what would that be? Right. This is going to be nothing groundbreaking here, I'm afraid, but I'm going to say visualization again. So, it, it, it was a success of that, which made me think that maybe psychology is a discipline worth showing some interest in. Because previously, I thought it was all physiology, but that, that was really remarkable to me, the, the impact of visualization on my performance. So that's the first thing I'd recommend. The second thing is, if in doubt, don't. Um, so going to come back to the risk-reward kind of strategy. You know, if you think, Even if you're taking small risk, you think, well, it's only a small risk. But if you, if you get into the habit of taking small risks all the time, then those small risk compounds and eventually some kind of breakdown or, or illness becomes inevitable. Okay, so always err on the side of caution if you want a long career in the sport. And finally, I'm going to say this, I'm assuming most of you listen to amateur triathletes as well, don't turn it into a second job. Mm, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've been talking about data and so on, but um, I used to fall into the trap of this myself. Um, the whole point of sport is recreation, you know, and enjoyment, etc. I think if you get so tied up in performance, you could potentially turn it into another kind of area of job. I read a really good book a while back by a philosopher called Mark Rowlands. Uh, and the book's called Running with a Pack. And I, I bought it because I thought it was a book about running. It wasn't really a book about running. It was about life in general. But um, he says that we, we do things for one of two reasons. You either do it because an activity's got intrinsic value, which means you do it for its own sake, or you do it for extrinsic value, which means you do it to get something else. So I go to work and teach because I need to, to pay my mortgage. So there is extrinsic value to my work. You know, I, I need to eat, etc. So most of the things we do have extrinsic value. So if I go training and I am doing a hard interval session, which I don't want to do, but I'm doing it for the benefits, which I hope I will gain from it, then that interval session is no longer enjoyment. It's now work. Okay, so do things for intrinsic reasons instead of extrinsic reasons. And I suspect that you'll get a longer, more enjoyable career in the sport. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And uh, now let's move into the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what is your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, any book by Percy Cerutti, the Australian coach of Herb Elliott in the 1960s. Mm, yeah, interesting. And uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Uh, is, is this where I meant to meditation or yoga or something like that? <laughs> I'm <thinking> that. <laughs> only, um, only, only if you benefited from it. <laughs> I've, got lo- I've got loads of bad habits. I'm just starting to think of a good one. I mean, I guess reading outside the discipline. So I, I read lots, but not all sports science either. I think by reading outside of that area and, and of endurance sports generally, you pick up all sorts of ideas which you can apply to your day-to-day work. Yeah. And uh, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Right, this is going to be a bit random because there were loads of people I could have said. I don't want to offend anybody. Um, Italian footballer Marco Tardelli, who scored the greatest goal, had the greatest goal celebration I've ever seen in the 1982 World Cup final. Uh, sorry, which one? 1982. 1982. All right. It, it was the thing which turned me on to sport. I'm going to YouTube that after. I'm, uh, I used to. I played football all my youth, so. <laughs> so I, I used to be a football obsessive in the 80s and the 90s, but that that that, that was the moment. Yeah. Wow. Uh, all right. And uh, finally, uh, Andy, where can people follow you? Uh, we mentioned already some things, but just repeat that for listeners so they can check you out um, and all the things you've got going on. Easiest place to find me is probably Twitter. So at Andy Renfrey, one word. Got it. Yeah. And you post links to your new blogs there. So so then people will yeah, yeah, find yeah. us as well. I'll put everything in the show notes so that they can find it. Thank you so much, Andy. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, and I really appreciate it. Hope to do it again another time. Okay, thanks very much. I enjoyed it too. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we'll have links to Andy's blog, Twitter, and research case gate, and also uh, links to uh, a number of studies on pacing. I won't list and name them all here, but they will all be listed in the show notes and episode description from Andy and from his colleagues as well. Also, uh, the books that uh, he recommended, Anti-Fragile and uh, 
the book by Percy Sarodi will be linked. And uh, next Monday on the podcast, I will interview uh, coach Tim Reed, who many of you might know as a professional triathlete who won the Ironman 73 World Championships in, I believe, 2017 off the top of my head, but I may have that year wrong. But anyway, he is a former Ironman 73 World Champion. And uh, yeah, that's a great discussion that I had with Tim about all things uh, training and coaching. So tune in for that. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals, then I would strongly recommend uh, you checking out our scientific triathlon coaching options and training plans. Whether you're just getting into triathlon or you're trying to qualify for a world championship event or even want to race professionally, uh, we have experience in all of those scenarios and we would love to discuss uh, with you and see if we can help you on your triathlon journey. Find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com. And big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. And use the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. And get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on senaeswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you'll get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.